1 Samuel 24. Have you ever had deja vu? Have you had this thing where you're in the middle of something? And as it's happening, you're like, this, this has happened to me before. Do you, are you good, Candace? Okay, keep going. Lower right, lower right. Yep, yep, yep. Keep, click. Yes, look at that. Wow. Thanks, Candace. You have this feeling where you've done this exact thing at another time. You just can't quite remember it. Deja vu is exactly what we're going to have as we're looking at two chapters in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 1 Samuel chapter 26. Because even David, the main character in these stories, is going to have deja vu himself, I'm sure. Remember, a couple of the key themes here in the uh, book of 1 Samuel, one of them really is this idea of humility and pride. And both of these stories kind of revolve around an axis of humility and pride in a way that you will see. 1 Samuel chapter 24 begins like this. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he, w- he was told, Behold, hey, check it out. David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. This is just the Bible. I'm reading it. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Cue the gasp. Saul is fresh from battle with the Philistines when someone says, hey, David has been found. Remember, if you missed last week, you really should be catching up online because these all hang together. It's important. We have a podcast. Um, By the way, I think we're working on an alternative podcast, so get ready. That's going to be exciting. Um, Grungier, grungier, yes. And all of my voice is in auto-tune. It's really fun. Saul's fresh from battle, and he has heard that David has been located. David has been on the run from Saul since 1 Samuel chapter 20. He has been hiding in the wilderness, gathering to himself some allies. By this time, David has between four and 600 people that have aligned themselves with him. They have been found, and so Saul gathers 3,000 chosen men to go find David. They go to the wilderness of Engedi. It's about 35 miles outside the city of Jerusalem. It's pockmarked, this land, with all sorts of caves. And, and David and his men are hiding in the back of one of these caves. And Saul and his men are, finding, are, are looking to find him. And as luck would have it, nature calls. And so Saul enters a cave by himself to relieve himself. And as Saul enters the cave, David's men look at him and say, this is your moment. Now the time has come. Look at, look at uh, verse 4. The men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I have never done anything stealthily in my life, so this is impressive. And afterward, verse 5, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David's 
David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. See, David has had this prophecy spoken over him that there would come a day when the Lord would put his enemy, Saul, into his hand. And the men around David say, this is your chance. I mean, think about it. Saul is as defenseless as they come. He is in the cave seeing a man about a horse. He won't have time to grab his sword. He won't have time to call out, David, you can sneak up. You can shank him in the back and be done with this. And so David creeps up while Saul does his business, and he very stealthily cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And we'll get back to this in a second. The text says that David was struck to the heart for doing even just that. I mean, that's how humble and righteous David is. He hasn't even laid a finger on Saul. And he's cut to the heart. This is a moment that is rich with symbolism. In the ancient Near East, clothing uh, means a lot. For those of you here last week, you'll remember that Jonathan, David's friend, took off his robe, his royal robe, and handed it to David as if to say, I trust you to be the king. I remove my rights of kingship. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Samuel pronounces to Saul that he will lose the kingdom, Saul reaches out and grabs the hem of Samuel's robe and it rips off in his hand. And Samuel turns around and says, see, this is a sign to you that the Lord has torn away the kingdom from you. This is another clothing, symbolic moment. Because, of course, it shows us how vulnerable Saul is. It shows him how Saul's life is literally in David's hands. It, it, It shows, though, at a deeper level, that in the cutting away of Saul's royal robe, that the Lord has removed the kingdom and placed it into David's hand. And at an even deeper level, I thought this was interesting, one commentator notes that in the Hebrew, it doesn't say that he cut off the hem. It says that he, it literally says he cut off the skirt. And that is a euphemism for um, removing a gentleman's manhood. They're trying to paint, the author's trying to paint Saul in the most embarrassing light possible because as he is, as his skirt is cut off, Saul's manhood, Saul's future, Saul's line, All of these things are being removed from him. And as that happens, as David reaches out his hand with his knife and cuts off that corner, he's struck to the heart that he would even get that close to rushing the Lord, that he would even get that close to taking his fate into his own hands. And so Saul leaves the cave. Whether or not, you know, the toilet paper was going this way or that way, the text doesn't say, I'm sorry, would really solve a lot of debates in a lot of houses, I think. But as Saul gets some distance away, David leaves the cave. He leaves, David leaves the cave, and he leaves with this piece of robe in his hand, and he has a chance to address Saul. He has a chance to have a conversation with Saul, the longest conversation they really have in the whole book. And it begins in uh, chapter 24, verse 8. It says, Afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face on the earth and paid homage. Do you see how honorable and how humble David is being? This is the guy that has been spending the last few months, will continue to spend time trying to kill David. And when David sees him, because it's the Lord's anointed, because it's the Lord's king, David bows down and pays the person who is seeking his life. He pays him homage. This is, this is the core of David's character. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David sees, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen 
how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11 says, see my father. Again, an honorific. See my father, the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand, my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore judge between and give sentence between you and me and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David, David's speech is careful and eloquent. It reads just like a closing argument, just like a closing argument on law and order. David is making his plea, his, his case to Saul, that he has not in any way tried to harm him. And exhibit A is this piece of robe. I had your life in my hands, David said, and I chose not to take it. So don't let these men in your royal court, don't let these sycophants and these yes men tell you that I'm trying to kill you because I had the chance and I didn't. David's speech is laden with honor, laden with care to be a blessing to his enemy and not to curse him. This careful case is so interesting because David even points out the foolishness with which Saul acts. David has four to six hundred men to his name. Saul brings three thousand chosen men, the best of the best, to go find this little ragtag Band. And that's why David says, you brought all of these men out here for a dead dog. And not just a dead dog, a flea on a dead dog. That's how meaningless I am, David is saying. But I love this little note where David says in verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. I love that line in verse 15 and in verse 12. Listen, this is a side note, but when you find yourself in the midst of a thing where they say, he said this, or she said this, and they're this way, and da-da-da-da-da, and it's a he said, she said, and you're caught in the drama, and all these kinds of things, let me just give you one small encouragement. Let the Lord judge between them and you. Don't defend your reputation. Let the Lord judge between them and you. If David's speech is careful, and thoughtful and eloquent, Saul's is bumbling and foolish and all over the place. Look at verse 16. It says, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me. And that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he not let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring from me, 
and that you will not destroy my name out of, the father's house, out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. See, Saul is so far gone, his descent into madness is so far gone that he doesn't even know David's voice anymore. And that when he recognizes David, he weeps. He's weeping over the guy that he's been trying to kill. And when he weeps and speaks through his tears, he acknowledges that David is more righteous than he. He acknowledges that David has dealt well with him and that David is worthy of reward from the Lord's hand. But most importantly, Saul outright admits that David is the better king, that David is the better choice. Verse, this, verse uh, 20 I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. In other words, you're going to be a better king than me. I'm a fool. You're going to be a better king. This is Saul implicitly swearing not to pursue David's life anymore. This is Saul implicitly saying, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let the Lord judge between us. We're going to go our separate ways and whatever happens, happens. It's the Lord's to decide. And this all sounds well and good. It sounds like this moment where David could finally get his just desserts, but instead surprises everyone with his humility and righteousness. And when Saul finally relents, it feels like, oh, okay, we can put this to bed. And then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 26. So flip over to there. We're going to do 25 later. It's a really cool story. And we're going to fly through some of these pieces in 1 Samuel 26. It says in chapter 26, verses 1, 2, and 4, it says, the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, is, it not da- is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Deja vu, people. Saul says, hey, I'm not going to relent. And then somebody says, hey, by the way, just like in chapter 24, we found David. And, David, and Saul says, hey, you know what? 3,000 guys really seem to work last time. Let's get those 3,000 guys back together and let's head out to, let's, and let, let, let's see what we can find. The deja vu continues when Abishai, who is uh, David's nephew, it turns out, says, hey, God has given your enemy into the hand this day because Saul and his men are sleeping out in the wilderness And so Abishai says, hey, this is our moment. Just like in the cave, somebody said, hey, this is our moment. Here in chapter 26, Abishai says, okay, let's go, let's do this. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down to the battle and perish. You see how David is willing to play the long game? David's saying, I might need to wait till I'm king until Saul gets old and dies of natural causes. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. That is copy and pasted from chapter 24. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. You see, David and Abishai, they creep into the camp while everybody is sleeping. And Saul is sleeping uh, with a a jar of water by his head and a spear in the ground. Uh, A lot of men just sleep with like a gun on the bedside table or like a bat. Um, We don't own guns in our house because I'd probably hurt somebody. Um, just saying. I've never shot a gun in my entire life. I don't know if you're allowed to live in Trumbull County if that's the case. Um, but here I am. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had taken them. So David creeps away. He's got the spear. He's got the jar. And then, just like in chapter 24, he and Saul get to have a little chat. He goes some distance away and he says, Saul, hey, look, I've got your water. Hey, I've got your spear. David says, the Lord rewards every man, or woman, by the way, for his righteousness and faithfulness. 
For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Saul says, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. Again, Saul relenting. 1 Samuel 24 and 26, they're strikingly similar stories. They're moved along by the exact same plot points. Saul hears of David's whereabouts. Saul gathers 3,000 men. Saul and the 3,000 men go looking for David. David spares Saul's life. David and Saul have a little chat where David proves his faithfulness and righteousness and willingness to trust the Lord and wait. And where Saul says, hey, you know what? You are a good king. Every single one of these plot points moves the story along in chapters 24 and chapter 26. So why do we have two stories? Why do we have two stories basically the same with one chapter in between? Why do we have two stories? Critical scholars, those being those who doubt the Bible's divine origin and its divine inspiration, see this as a classic example of contradiction and error in the Bible that these stories are actually put in by an editor to help them see this, 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 and that in the future. It seems to me, and to many others, that this is not accidental, but that these two stories are included in close proximity to one another to tell us something about David, to tell us something about Saul, and to hold up a mirror to us, to our faces, so that we can examine. Remember, 1 Samuel will rarely say, be like this, don't be like this, do this, don't do this. Instead, it holds up these characters to us over and over again for us to pause and reflect and see what's going on in us. And here's what we see, the repetition of 1 Samuel 24 and 26. They present Saul and David with the same circumstances. For Saul, it's an opportunity to go and find and maybe kill David. For David, it's an opportunity to relent and spare Saul's life. And this repetition, this repetition invites us to pay close attention to David and to Saul to see how they handle themselves when presented with the same circumstances twice. Presented with the same circumstance, we see David grow, David enlarges, he gets bigger because in both circumstances, David responds with justice and integrity and trust in the Lord. Meanwhile, Saul, presented with the same circumstance twice, he he shrinks, he gets smaller, he leans into foolishness and rage. Here's the thing about life. Life is one long series of the same circumstance over and over and over and over again. Life is one long series of the same circumstances over and over and over and over again. What else is parenting? What else is marriage? What else is friendship? What else is having a job? What else is being church together other than the same circumstance on repeat. And when presented with the same circumstance over and over and over again in our marriage, in our friendships, at work, at home, in our parenting, when presented with the same circumstances over and over and over again, we are presented with a choice. We are presented with a choice to either grow bigger or become smaller. David becomes bigger as he's presented with the same circumstance over and over again, and Saul shrinks down in and lets the darker side Either these series of hard conversations and frustrating moments cause us, either these things cause us to grow further into the image of Jesus or further away. Here's what I'm saying, is that God's way of growing us 
God's way of growing us as his people is by presenting us with the same circumstances over and over again, giving us an opportunity to grow in love and peace and joy. You might say that these repeated circumstances, these repeated difficult conversations with your kids or with your parents or with friends or with coworkers, that these difficult conversations are really, these repeated circumstances, they are really the fertilizer by which God grows the, Holy, the fruits of the Spirit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those emerge out of us over the long haul when we are faced time and time and time again with the same circumstance, because nothing, nothing grows in us long-suffering like parenting. Nothing grows in us kindness like marriage. Nothing grows in us joy like being difficult in difficult circumstances. Nothing grows in us gentleness like a conflict with a coworker. And I would go so far as to say that there are seasons in your life when you will find yourself living the movie Groundhog Day, Every day, the same thing over and over and over again. And it's going to make you go crazy, but that is God intentionally bringing the same person, the same circumstance, the same conversation into your lives. And he's not going to let go of that repeated circumstance in your life until you have gotten every single last drop of goodness that he has for you in that moment. That difficult relationship with that person in your life isn't going to go away until God has formed in you what he is desiring to form in you through that relationship. That frustrating series of circumstances that happen over and over and over again is designed by God with intention to grow us. Listen, I have a good friend who has spent like the last year and a half facing what I would describe like minor annoyances and frustrations. His A a home improvement project on their backyard has taken, just took way longer than they thought. And then their basement flooded, and then they needed a new van. And then uh, his wife started developing some migraines, and it wasn't debilitating. It wasn't like life threatening, but they finally find a doctor who's two hours away that their insurance will cover, and they drive all the way there, and they find out, no, actually, our insurance won't cover it. And these kinds of things keep happening over and over again. Not crisis, but just like the wear and tear of life. And there's a part of me that wonders, what on earth is God doing in this? And I would say what we see in 1 Samuel 24 and 26 is this, that when these frustrations and and stressors come into our life over and over again, that is not an absence. That's not the absence of God's work in our life. It's actually the Lord taking us to school through the frustrations of life. It is actually God working in us to bring about his purposes. It is actually God working in us to do something You know, when David is in the cave, hiding from Saul, he writes Psalm 57. Psalm 57. And these two verses really stick out. He says, I cry out to God Most High, who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. When we are faced with life's annoyances and difficulties and frustrations on repeat, that is not the absence of God's working in your life. That is not a sign that you are being punished by God. In fact, that is God fulfilling his purpose in you and through you. 
That is him conforming you to the image of Jesus. That is him setting you free to life and life abundant. You know what you know, First Thessalonians, it says, this is God's will for you, that you be rich. No. This is God's will for you, that you be, uh, you be comfortable. No. This is God's will for you, that you no longer be single and you be married. No. This is God's will for you, that you, no. This is God's will for you, holiness. This is God's will for you, holiness. Be perfect, Jesus says, as my heavenly Father is imperfect. And there's no like asterisk on the other end of that says, but I actually also know that you can't be perfect, so just try really hard and it'll be fine. No, Jesus says, be perfect as, I, as my Father in heaven is perfect. Je- Paul says, God's will for you is holiness. And the way that God forms us in that, the way that God brings about holiness in us is by taking us through the deja vu and groundhog day of life's annoyances and frustrations and even in the midst of that, fulfilling his purpose for us in steadfast love and faithfulness, fulfilling his purpose for us. And so we are faced with the same temptations. We're faced with the same difficult relationships. We're faced with the same conversation in marriage. We're faced with the same conversation about our, with our kids. And God is not going to relent until you have squeezed every last drop of what he intends for you out of that. He's not going to relent. And, and that means some of us get to move through Groundhog Day and, more, and faster than a feature-length movie, and some of us will be trapped in the feature-length movie for decades at a time because we just won't show up. When we are obedient to God's voice in the midst of this, when we are flexible, when we are soft, when we show up every time, that's how we get to move through the cycle faster. But when we're inflexible, when we're stuck, when we're trying to go back to Egypt, when we're clinging to sin, God's, God is patient and we'll just let us sit in it. Because I've been a parent for six and a half months. And let me tell you what. Sometimes you just got to leave the kid to fuss. Sometimes we just got to leave our kids to sit in it. Sometimes, sometimes the repeated circumstances in our life are not just the minor frustrations of life. The repeated circumstances isn't just the annoying stuff. Sometimes the, fresh, the, 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 the repeated circumstance, the cycle, is downright scary. It is bottoms out hard. I mean, think about for a moment how close David came to dying. I think it's really easy to read 1 Samuel 24 and 26 and be like, oh, yay, the Lord helped him. Ta-da. David, David, David and his friends are hiding in the back of a cave. They're, they're hiding in the back of a cave where 3,000 people are looking for them. There's maybe 600 of them. They are now outnumbered five to one. There's no exit out, out the back of the cave. There's no exit out the back of the cave. If they are found, it will not be a matter of, do. Well, I wonder if David and his friends survive. It will be a bloodbath. David survives. He's hiding in the wilderness again. He survives. And David says, God fulfills his purpose for me. God fulfills his purpose for me. I was talking to Julia about what this sermon was starting to look like, and she said, I feel like half of the sermons that we have preached in our life have been sermons about being in the middle. And here's why. We are all spending our lives in the middle. We're just waiting and holding on and being patient. And in the middle, if you are in the middle of something scary, if you're in the middle of something soul-crushing, if you're in the middle of something disastrous, I want you to hear me. 
That is not the absence of God's presence. That is not the absence of God's purpose. That is the very place that you discover exactly who this God of steadfast love and faithfulness is. It is exactly where you understand more profoundly than ever exactly who God is. Three miscarriages. Talk about a cycle of hope and excitement and disappointment and hope and excitement and disappointment. We end up on these little hamster wheels of sadness. And we wonder if it's actually taking us anywhere. And and what I'm telling you this morning is that even on the hamster wheel, aside from our questions of why and how and what does this mean, David finds himself, you and I find ourselves in the midst of the slow unfolding of the promises of God in our midst. The operative word, slow slow unfolding of God's purposes in our midst, the slow unfolding. In the New Testament, Second Peter, uh, Peter is writing a circular letter, which means it's a letter going to more than one church, but what all these churches have in common is they are facing overwhelming persecution. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, they are waking up and wondering who got taken in the night for being a Christian. You have never experienced even one one-thousandth of what this is like. You've never even experienced of one one-thousandth of what this is like. And so Peter is writing to these churches, writing to these Christians who are profoundly discouraged, who, who are profoundly hurting, who are living in fear all the time. And, and he writes, he writes this, Do not overlook this one fact, that with the, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Paul, uh, Peter, is, Peter is writing in the context of the return of Christ. Here's a little footnote. We have a lot of new Christians. We look forward to the personal bodily return of Jesus at any given moment, like now, or now, okay? And Peter is saying, it is really hard right now, it is, but I want you to look forward to the coming of Jesus. He will make all things new, he will make all things right, and it feels like he is taking his time. (laughs) But the Lord is not slow, as some count slowness, Instead, he is slowly and steadily and intentionally fulfilling his promise. And so I thought to myself this morning, what am I asking us to do? What am I asking us to do? When we are in the midst of suffering, and you might not be right now, so let's just give it five minutes and talk again. When we are in the midst of suffering, our face gets so close to the paper Our face gets so close to it that we lose all sense of time and space. We lose total sense of perspective. And so can I ask you this morning just to lift your face up off the paper to see the breadth and scope of your life, to remember that even in the midst of this perhaps very, for some of you, very extended season of just awfulness, that that does not define ultimately the character of God and that even in the midst of that, God is slowly but surely fulfilling his purposes for your life. Can I invite you to remember 
that the Lord is not slow, as some consider slowness, that he is on the move. David says, I cry out to God most high, who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, Let me pray, and then Aaron's going to lead us in some response time. We're reminded this morning, Jesus of the words of Gandalf the Grey, who says, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Um, We're not enjoying the timetable that you're working with. We're not enjoying being outside of the garden. But Jesus, this morning, we want to pull our face back from the paper to see where you might be. So give us eyes, like David, to see what others don't. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to take a few minutes to um, just kind of reflect over what was just spoken to us. Um, There there are definitely some things that um, God is highlighting to you, um, and I would encourage you to just um, kind of spend some time working through that, thinking about where am I seeing God where, what areas of my life have I yet to maybe see um, Jesus? And uh, so I would, I would just encourage you to spend some time, but um, also to spend a little bit of time focusing on here are the areas where I have seen God, um, and then just ask him to do it again. <laughs>